Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Uh, for those who are listening on KFUO, you probably will hear a lot of background uh, uh, excitement and enthusiasm here today as our fellowship breakfast uh, extended a little bit longer than usual uh, due to the fact that we are saying uh, bidding farewell to our vicar, Vicar Tanner Wade, after his successful completion of vicarage here in our midst. And so as a result, the uh, fellowship breakfast went a little bit longer. Want to welcome all of our listeners on KFUO 850 AM here in the St. Louis area and also worldwide KFUO.org. Uh, for those who are here in the gymnasium at St. Paul's, we do have sheets on the side on the bleachers there that have the scripture lessons uh, printed on them. And as we ordinarily do, we are going to look at the lessons for next Sunday. So it will be the scripture lessons assigned actually for Sunday, August 18. So with that in mind, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings that you continue to shower down upon us as your people. Especially do we praise and thank you for the best blessing of all, that of your own Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and death and resurrection once again. We thank you that as we are here, we know that our sins are forgiven, we are restored in our relationship with you, and we have everlasting life in your presence to look forward to. We pray, Heavenly Father, you send your Holy Spirit to be with us here this day as we study your word. We pray that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. All right, so we are going to take a look at uh, the lessons for next Sunday, and as usually the case, the Old Testament and the Gospel lesson match up somewhat. Uh, if you remember last week, or uh, two weeks ago, rather, when I was in here, there was a very close connection uh, between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson. That was uh, the one that actually, if you were here at St. Paul's today, that Vicar Wade is preaching on from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And then the gospel lesson was Jesus talking about how foolish it is to store up uh, things here on this earth. Uh, the guy who built uh, more and more barns and stored more and more grain, and then that night his soul was required of him. So those matched up really well. Today's are probably not as close a connection. We're going to talk in the Old Testament lesson from Jeremiah about the false prophets who were around in Jeremiah's day, and really, it, they came before Jeremiah, and they were there after Jeremiah as well. It wasn't just during that time period. And then Jesus, in the gospel lesson, is going to be talking about reaction to him as, and it's, it's going to sound rather strange to us, but as actually the division that is caused uh, between parents and children and so on. And we'll kind of save that until we actually get there, but it's going to sound... I'll just warn you, it's going to sound a little strange to our ears uh, when we read it, and, and we'll have to talk about that and explain that, okay? So first of all, let's take a look at our Old Testament lesson. And again, for those of you here at St. Paul's, there are sheets on the side that have these lessons printed out. And you'll see that we're going to look at Jeremiah 23, and we'll start with verse 16. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying in the latter part of the 7th century B.C., so... Uh, and God's people, remember, in uh, 586 are going to have Babylon come and take them uh, away, basically. Uh, defeat them, cart the brightest and the best uh, from them uh, off to Babylon. And remember in 722 B.C. that uh, Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom. And, and so that already has occurred. Jeremiah is prophesying now in the... 600s, in, in the latter part of the, uh, the 600s, so 630, 620 in that, in that time. So we're about 40 or 50 years back and destroyed Judah and uh, Jerusalem and, again, take the brightest and the best off into captivity. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the backdrop. And uh, Jeremiah is, uh, well, you could talk a lot about Jeremiah, but 
One thing about him is he faced, it seemed like, almost constant uh, resistance uh, from, from, from God's own people. And here's the situation. There were prophets back at that time who were paid prophets, who were telling the people, and especially the kings, not to worry. Everything is fine. God and we are just in great shape. Nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. Eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, don't listen to guys like Jeremiah, you know. And, and uh, so bad was it that, uh, well, there was a King Josiah. I will say this. There was a King Josiah under whom there was a lot of great reform that took place. But then after Josiah, there was a king a little bit later called Jehoiakim. And he was one of the last of the southern kings. And he actually took one of Isaiah's, or one of uh, Jeremiah's scrolls and burned it. So imagine that. Uh, uh, the leader of God's people actually burning one of the scrolls from, of God's word through the prophet Jeremiah. So this is what Jeremiah was facing, this constant uh, pushback, this constant uh, false prophecy uh, by these false prophets who wanted to tell the kings and the leaders everything that they wanted to hear, that everything's just fine, don't worry about a thing, okay? Now, we'll talk about, uh, in a little bit, I want to make a modern-day comparison here, but we'll, let's get into the text first, and then we'll, uh, we'll get there, okay? So, starting at verse 16 of uh, Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the, the Lord of, of uh, the, the heavenly armies, the Lord of Sabaoth, okay? Thus says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. Now, for those of you that were at the 8 o'clock or were here two weeks ago, this is the that word vain is the same word that is in Ecclesiastes where it says vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we might, we might say uh, synonyms might be something like emptiness, hopelessness, uh, futility is another, is another good one. So these prophets who fill you with empty hopes. Why are they empty? They're not true. They're what the prophets are making up in their head. So they're empty. They're not from the Lord. This is one of the few times you will see uh, God's word telling his people, don't listen to the prophets. <laughs> but he means not the false prophets who fill you up with empty things, okay, or empty hopes. Uh, going on, they, these false prophets, speak visions of their own minds. See, it's just whatever they conjure up in their head is what they're speaking. In other words, it's not the actual word of the Lord. It's whatever they think. It's like their opinion, okay? Um, uh, not from the mouth of the Lord. Now, let me stop here for just a second. Um, we may take this for granted today in the Lutheran church, I think, that when, I hope you do anyway, that when you come to church, what you are going to hear from the pulpit is not what Pastor Thomas or Pastor Thompson think about the world or about politics or about social justice or any other topics. Uh, if that ever happens, uh, you go right to your elder and, and uh, give him an earful. We come here speaking not what we conjure up in our head, but what the Word of God tells us. And there's a ditch on both sides of the road here that we have to be careful of, I think, and the prophets back then did too, every, everybody. There's a ditch on one side of the road that says you fail to say clearly and, the, and fully what the Word of God says. In other words, the Word of God says this, oh, but I think, and usually it's, it's when it comes to the law and it's lightening the, the impact of the law. So there's that ditch on that side of the road. Now there's a ditch on the other side of the road, though, it was, which is just the opposite, and that is adding to what God's Word has said. In other words, on a particular subject, God's Word stops here, but I think, and then you extrapolate out even further, and that is just as, just as dangerous to be presenting things as the Word of God when God has not spoken on that or has not spoken that fully on it. There's a danger on both sides. In the Old Testament, the uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees 
had extended God's law and added hundreds, over 600 rules and regulations to the law of God, and they spoke of it as a fence around the law of God. And they spoke of it as a fence, these hundreds of rules and regulations, because they were designed to keep you from even coming close to breaking God's law. That's why it was referred to as a fence. And we would say that is an example of going beyond what the Word of God says and making binding on people things that God's Word does simply does not speak about. Okay? And so there's a ditch on both sides of the road that we have to be careful to avoid. What we're dealing with here, though, in the, in the uh, Old Testament lesson, is that first ditch that I talked about. In other words, God's people are practicing idolatry. They are, they are worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites around them. And uh, worship of him has become just going through the motions. No heart involved in it whatsoever. They show up at all the right times and do all the right things. Uh, and and uh, there's a passage, another passage in Isaiah, talks about the people who honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And this is exactly what's going on. And we've got the false prophets running around, failing to condemn this, and speaking as though everything is just fine. Okay? So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, uh, some of the modern-day application. Uh, going on to verse 17. They say, these are these false prophets, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. So see what, see what they're saying there. Again, everything's just fine. Not to worry. Don't worry about a thing. You know, don't worry. Be happy. Okay? Now, um, there is, uh, I think, when I, I don't want to get into specifics here, but there are even, uh, in addition to, to congregations, there are pastors, and I think we can even say there are some church bodies, Christian church bodies today, who, have, who are lightening the load when it comes to the law of God. Just, be, just because of, of modern, uh, we might say modern social pressures to, to not condemn something as being displeasing in the sight of God, and to sort of go along with the flow. And I think we always have to be on guard with that, to, that we're not saying all things are just fine when they're really not, okay? And we see this happening back here, and God says through Jeremiah, don't even listen to those guys, right? We have another, uh, uh, maybe another example today. Have you heard of what's called the prosperity gospel? This is uh, very unfortunately getting, uh, seems pretty popular in our country. And basically, just a thumbnail uh, sketch of it, uh, the idea is that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and especially they seem to emphasize that wealthy part uh, quite a bit. And if you're not, you just need to pray harder, and you just need to be more faithful, and God is going to give you that Rolls Royce, and God is going to give you that mansion, and so on. Now, uh, you may end up with a Rolls Royce, you may, you may end up with a mansion, and God may choose to give that to you as a, a, a part of his will, but not necessarily, see? And, and we're saying, they, they are saying that, again, if you want those things, there's this old uh, claim it, uh, name it and claim it to be your own, and then God will give that to you. And again, we would say, no, 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 no. You know, in fact, look at the, look at the lesson from last week, you know, uh, the guy storing up more and more grain, and that night his soul is required of him. And, and Jesus says, who's all of this that you've stored up, whose will it be? Okay? So we have to be on, on guard. How, let me ask you this. How do we determine, if we hear something, that how do we determine, what is our standard for determining whether it is a false prophecy or not? Where do we go? The Word of God. That is the source for all that we teach and all that we believe and all that we confess together as Christians. Uh, the prophets back at that time, remember, a prophet had two main functions. One was, and this is the one that people usually associate with a prophet, that's foretelling the future, right? For uh, predicting the future. But actually, when you look at what the prophets did, they did a lot more of actually what I call forth telling. They, they taught 
the word of God to God's people at that time and, and what his will was and what his will is not, okay? And that's what Jeremiah is trying to do here, all right? So again, uh, these guys are just uh, calling everything fine when it's, it's not at all. Verse 18, for who among them, this is the, the false prophets again, who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Now, those are all rhetorical questions there, right, about these false prophets. You know, who, which one of them, these false guys, has stood in the council, or you might say, uh, you know, has been in, in, the, in the throne room before God? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is none of them have, right? None of them have. And uh, to hear his word, pay attention, and listen, okay? Verse 18 now uh, kind of cuts off, and starting with verse 19, now we get what really is going to happen. Here comes the truth from Jeremiah after he has condemned these false prophets. So starting at verse 19, Behold the storm of the Lord, the storm of Yahweh. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. So you can see the contrast, right? Uh, between what Jeremiah is saying here and what these false prophets are saying. Um, let me just ask you this. What, what do people prefer to hear? They prefer to hear that everything's just fine. And I'm fine too, right? Uh, and, and they would prefer to hear that. Not a message like Jeremiah is giving, or in modern day, not a message uh, that contains God's law and the need to repent and the need for a Savior. It's much, it's, uh, much, uh, you'd much rather hear something like, we're all born with a spark of the divine in us, and all we need to do is fan that into a flame, or, or some message like that. Uh, and it, uh, that sounds nice, but unfortunately, it's just not true. All right, going on, uh, verse 20. The anger of the Lord will not turn back. In other words, it's not going to turn around. It's coming. It's unstoppable. Until he has executed and accomplished the intense of his heart, or the, we could say the intentions of his heart, maybe it's a better translation. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. So Jeremiah is telling them, in time, you're going to see, number one, that I'm right, and two, you're going to understand what I'm saying to you right now, okay? And so again, he's not, he's not going to be a, a popular guy. He's not, he's not going to run for office here at this. Uh, verse 21. I did not send the prophets, these would be the, the false prophets again, yet they ran. And, and we do have a, we, I forget which uh, book it's in, but we do have an example of a prophet kind of running from one town to the other with a message. You know, they, they would go and teach from town to town. And God is saying, I didn't send these prophets, and yet they're out there running from town to town. Okay? And, and yet they prophesied. Verse 22, but if they had stood in my counsel, in other words, they didn't, but if they had, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people, right? And so, uh, you know, one thing we can uh, just interject here a minute, that notice these prophets were not called by God. A true prophet in the Old Testament was actually called by God, summoned by God. You didn't set yourself up. You weren't a self-appointed prophet, okay? And we would say the same thing extends even to today, that God calls uh, those who will serve him to proclaim and teach his word. Uh, there is that desire in the heart. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, Paul talks about if anyone desires the office of overseer, uh, and there's a whole process that we go through, and I won't, we're not, don't have the time to detail all that process. But there, there are not, in our church body, there are not self-appointed pastors, as there are in some other church bodies. They, uh, we believe God calls, uh, through his church, through the body of Christ, those who will, in modern day, proclaim his word and teach his word and administer the sacraments uh, in the midst of his people. Same thing back at that time. Unfortunately, there were some, who, uh, quite a few, that uh, considered themselves self-appointed prophets. And they, they did not. And by the way, too, maybe I don't want to get too far off, but the fact that Jeremiah knew that he was called by God 
when you stop and think about it, would be a source of great um, comfort to him and peace to him, even as he's being ridiculed and, and just pushed back against by all the people. The fact that he could say and know in his heart of hearts that he was truly called by God uh, would be a matter of great strength, I think, for him as he, uh, as he faced all this, okay? Um, all right, back to verse 22. But if they had, in other words, stood, if these false prophets had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So, again, it didn't happen. It's a contrary-to-fact thing. If they had, though, then they would have proclaimed my word. Then the people would have turned away from their evil deeds. You know, things would have been, in other words, according to the will of God. But these guys obviously had not. Uh, verse 23, uh, some more rhetorical questions. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is. He is a God who is at hand. In other words, the, the unspoken message is, I know what these guys are saying, and I can see what you're doing, you know? Uh, Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You know, just for a second, that's probably a, a bit of a two-edged sword, isn't it? We say that God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. Now, how can that be, first of all, how can that be maybe not very comforting? If he's everywhere present, then what does he, what is he present when? I sin, right? So there's nothing you're doing, there's nothing you're hiding from him. You know, there's nowhere you can go. So maybe that's not his comforting, but obviously the comforting part of his presence is the other side of that coin, isn't it? That uh, no matter where I am, so if I am in the operating room of a hospital or the emergency room of a hospital or in some other, you know, my my car is, is going out of control, or, you know, whatever the, wherever we are, there's nowhere where he is not present with us. So that's kind of a two-edged uh, thing. In this case, uh, God is using it on the negative side. You know, I, I know what's going on. You know, I don't care what these guys say. I, I know what's going on. Okay? Uh, verse uh, 25, I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. In other words, they, they come, I, 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 I've had a dream from God, and here's what it is. And of course, again, it's just what they've made up in their head. Um, verse 26, how long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Again, notice where the source of this is. It's from their own heart, from their own mind. Um, those uh, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name uh, for Baal. That's, I guess you would say, the, the end result or the conclusion here, that these guys are actually turning people away from God and away from the truth of his word with what they're saying, their own concoctions and what they make up, and notice there, God compares them, compares what's going to happen to their fathers who forgot his name and went after Baal. And so this is why we take, you know, we take this very seriously, this stuff, that if, you're, if you are not proclaiming the word of God but something else, you're actually taking people away from the word of God and eventually from God himself, right? Um, the, the commandment, remember Luther's explanation of the commandment for uh, remember the Sabbath day? Uh, fear, and love, uh, fear, love, and trust in God that we may not despise preaching and his word, right? But hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. How do we despise the word of God? One of the ways, well, there's the old, I've got for the confirmation students the old, the old ways that, you know, you don't come to church, you come to church and don't listen, you come to church and listen but don't believe it, you come to church, listen, believe it, but you don't enact it in your life. Okay, so that's the four. Uh, you can tell I've taught that a couple times. But the, the, other, the other way we despise the word is exactly what's happening in Jeremiah's day here, right? That I know what the word of God says, but here's what I think, right? And it always baffles me when we will we'll hear somebody say something like that. Well, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but at that point, what are you doing? You're saying God has said this. But I think I'm going to either do this or think this. And that, again, we would say is despising the word of God. It is not holding it sacred and gladly hearing it 
and learning it, okay? And sometimes, again, there are some unpopular things that, that we have to say, all right? Uh, okay, verse 28, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word. In other words, proclaim the truth and the purity of God's word. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Well, what do you think the, uh, the what, what's the import or what's the meaning of that, you know, that phrase that he asked there? What does, what, what uh, has straw and wheat in common? They're totally different things, aren't they? Straw and wheat. In other words, he's making a comparison there between the false prophecy and the real word of God, right? So we don't, we don't consume straw and wheat together. We shouldn't be consuming uh, false teaching and the word of God together, okay? And then he speaks about, the, notice the power of the word of God. Like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces. And we think there again, this is on a, on a, a trajectory of of God's judgment that is going to come to his people. And it will, as it, as it uh, you know, the law rightly does, it, it shatters our, our, uh, our, our foolish pride in ourselves, and then hopefully the gospel comes along uh, shortly <laughs> thereafter and reminds us that uh, God has made things right with him once again through his son, okay? All right, so... Uh, not the most uplifting Old Testament lesson for next, uh, for next Sunday, perhaps. Uh, let me stop here for a moment. Any, uh, any thoughts, any questions, any comments on the Old Testament lesson for next Sunday from Jeremiah? Anybody? Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. The, yes, the, um, the question was that in the first uh, verse, uh, verse 16, is that word vain the same way as taking the Lord's name in vain, using it needlessly? Yeah, and of course we are... Uh, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit different translation, but it's empty, uh, futile, and we would say, when you think about it, uh, you know, they've changed the translation in the catechisms now. You know, just when you learn it, they, they go ahead and make a change. And now the commandment is something like, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. When I learned it, when I think when most of us in the room looking around learned it, it was, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain which meant, again, using it needlessly or misusing it. So, in a sense, they are saying the same sort of thing here. These prophets have vain words. They're, they're empty. They're, they're uh, futile because they're not the Word of God. And we don't want to use God's name in a way that is empty or futile or needlessly. Right? So, yes. The answer would be yes. That's a long, uh, long answer for a short question. Uh, anybody else on the Old Testament lesson? All right, let's, I want to jump to the gospel lesson, and I, as I warned you, this is going to sound a little strange to our ears. Uh, this is, uh, what Jesus says here is going to sound a little strange in our ears. However, it is the Lord speaking, and, uh, and we will talk about it. I want to read through the whole thing first, and there's not that much, and I uh, uh, went ahead and included, there's, there's an optional inclusion of verses 54 and, through 56, we're in Luke 12, uh, for those at home. Uh, Luke 12, we're going to start at verse 49, and we're going to go all the way through to verse 56. Okay, so Luke 12, starting at verse 49. And again, these are the words of Jesus. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? 
The connection I would see with the Old Testament lesson here is kind of the same sort of general message. Jesus is telling them, wake up and smell the coffee. You know, that uh, judgment is coming. And sort of the same message that Jeremiah had uh, in the Old Testament lesson. So let's go and take a look here at, uh, at this uh, verse by verse. I came to bring, to cast fire on the earth. Now we have to think about what Jesus is, 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 is talking about here is the reaction to him that already had been occurring at that time and is going to continue to occur, right? It is not going to be happy and peaceful uh, in, in, in all cases. There is a way we can speak of, where Jesus even said, uh, peace I give to you, my, my peace I bring you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So there is that peace that we have as Christians internally that is given us. But in terms of the earth and the reaction to Jesus, he's acknowledging here that it's not going to be peaceful, it's not going to be pleasant, uh, everyone is not going to gather around the campfire and sing Kumbaya. It is going to be rough. And he is going to face intense opposition. And so are his followers, right? And he's, he's uh, you might say, he is giving them a dose of reality here. And when you think about what the disciples are going to face, even after he is ascended into heaven, uh, the opposition that they are going to face, even to the point of dying as martyrs, except for the disciple John, uh, we, we see that happening, okay? So he has come, and by his very mission, by the gospel that he brings, he is bringing fire. He is bringing intense opposition as well. That next phrase, and would that it were already kindled. Now that is one way of translating that. Uh, I'll just say this, the Greek is very... Um, I'd say difficult, but very uncertain, maybe is a better way to put it, as to how to translate this. I'm going to go with, uh, uh, most of you remember Professor Veltz, Dr. Veltz, who was here, who's uh, forgotten more Greek than probably most people have ever learned. But uh, he has a slightly different translation of this. And let me see if I can and render this. Um, and, 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 what, and what do I desire if already it were kindled? In other words, it's, he's saying it's already kindled, what do I desire? The way it's translated here, it makes it sound like the fire has not been kindled yet. And uh, Dr. Veltz and some others, and I think I would side with this, frankly, uh, you know, what would I desire if already it were kindled? And so he's saying, what do I desire now that this fire is already kindled, this opposition is already kindled? And certainly Jesus by this time has had a great deal of opposition. He is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, and he knows what awaits him there, and he's facing opposition all the way, okay? Um, and um, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Well, what in the world is he talking about here? He's been baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan uh, two-plus years ago at this point. So the baptism he's talking about is not a water baptism anymore, but he's talking actually about his passion, his crucifixion and resurrection. And, um, you know, it's parallel perhaps. Remember on Maundy Thursday evening in, uh, in the garden, what does Jesus pray? Father, if it be possible, let this cup, what? Pass from me. In other words, the, the cup of God's wrath, right? And, uh, not, but he's quick to add, remember, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is that baptism that he still has to be baptized with. And how great is my distress. You know, sometimes I think we, we uh, maybe don't appreciate as much, I'll put it that way, as we should, the fact that Jesus was also true man on this earth. And as such, the terror of crucifixion. It was the most gruesome, shameful, slow way to die. And he's admitting right here his distress. And in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane again, on Monday, Thursday, he goes off and prays and remember uh, his drops of sweat fall as drops of blood. And he asks the Father, if it be possible, let this pass from me. 
So again, he's in distress here until it is accomplished. Uh, verse 51, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? Uh, obviously, Jesus did not come here uh, to say that, you know, to be a worldly leader and bring worldly peace on this earth. There is the peace between God and man that he came to bring. It's a much greater peace than mere political peace here on the, on the face of the earth, right? He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. And the division is going to be a result of him and his message. It's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. And notice there, um, from now on, uh, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three, father against son, son against father, uh, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, uh, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. Maybe that's not a real surprise there. And uh, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We can maybe understand that one a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but notice there, families are going to be divided, right? Even within one family, there is going to be division now. And we see that, don't we? Um, unfortunately, we see families where you know parents are, on, on, are, are believers and children are not, or maybe a father is a believer and a mother is not, or vice versa. And uh, you know, it, uh, the statistics. See, we're having time to talk about this, but with the statistics, when both parents are in church, and I read a new one uh, a few weeks ago. When the father is not only there, but is participating, by that I mean is actually singing the hymns and praying, and not just taking up space there with a blank stare. Uh, in the, the statistics are incredibly lopsided with will those children eventually stay uh, active in, the church, in church? Uh, will they be active in worship and receiving the gifts of God? I don't want to quote any out to look this. I shouldn't have started down this path without uh, having the exact number. But there's, there's one stat uh, dealing with if mom alone comes. There's another statistic that if it's uh, mom and dad at church. And then there's another statistic when mom and dad and they are fully participating. You know, the child sees that they're not just there taking up space, but, hey, they actually look like they believe this, right? They're actually participating. They're saying the prayers. So just something to think about. And we see this happen, don't we, where houses are divided, that uh, the opposition of Jesus is, is no respecter of, of uh, genetics or bloodlines or uh, relationships at all. And there can be this great division that takes place, even within families. And Jesus predicts it here. You know, he didn't, he didn't come. Uh, to say that, well, everything's all fine and let's just love one another. No, he came here to bring peace and to defeat sin and death and Satan. And unfortunately, that causes division. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, okay? All right, going on, I've uh, got to move on here. He also said to the crowds, so basically he's saying, you guys, you guys know how to look to the west and see that a shower is coming. Looking to the west would be a lookout if we were there, uh, over, over the Mediterranean Sea and see storm clouds coming. You guys see that, you know a storm is coming. Uh, you look and uh, when the wind is blowing from the south, just like here in this country, right? Uh, you know it's gonna be hot, but you don't know how to look around and interpret the times. You don't know, you don't know how to look around and see what the truth is. And, and it kind of leaves it right there. So again, not, we don't have an uplifting Old Testament lesson. We don't have an uplifting uh, gospel lesson next week. Uh, uh, I think Pastor Steve King is, uh, uh, Reverend Steve King is preaching. You're, you're preaching on the Hebrews text. Yeah, good, good choice. <laughs> uh, boy, you'd have, to, you'd have to bring some gospel into this because there, there is not much there to, uh, to call upon. All right, let me stop for just a second and uh, see. Are there any questions, any comments on this? Yes. Right, so the question again was, uh, the world is, is falling apart, it seems. You, know, you watch uh, television. We just prayed again uh, this morning for the victims and families of, or the, the families of those who were impacted by the mass shootings that we've had. And there are some churches that are, uh, coming with some churches that are totally social justice, not much gospel there at all, but just, you know, get out there and change the world. That's, that's your purpose. And then on the other, there's, a, again, a ditch on the other side of the road that uh, we're not involved in our world at all. We're simply here... Uh, to preach the gospel and minister the sacraments. Uh, you know, you look at what Jesus said um, when the uh, scribe came to him and said, Teacher, what's the greatest law? Uh, what's the greatest of the commandments, rather? 
And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And let's hope that we're about doing both of those. We love, first of all, because he first loved us. And we, are, we always want to be a Christ-focused, Christ-centered church. And everything that we teach and proclaim, that Jesus Christ is at the core of it. But that doesn't mean that we kind of put our head in the sand and act as if the world around us doesn't matter or that people don't matter. It's just the, it's just the opposite. So uh, a short answer to a question. I, obviously, you could write a whole book on something like this, I guess. But the, the short answer is it's both and. It's both the gospel of Jesus Christ and his the sacraments and being active in the world around us. And we see, uh, hopefully, we, we um, attempt to do that. I think we do attempt to do that here at St. Paul's with the many opportunities that we have to serve others. Uh, boy, everything from the shoeboxes at Christmas to diaper drive that we had just not that long ago. And you'll be seeing more and more opportunities in the future. That's one of the three areas that uh, we're trying as, as uh, call leaders here at St. Paul's to kind of raise up the profile of over the coming year. Okay, great question. All right, anything else on the gospel lesson? Either questions or comments? All right, now let's go to Hebrews. And this is kind of chopped up a little bit. You see the verses, and I did not include uh, verses 32 through 40 just because of the length of it. Uh, I hope nobody feels cheated, but uh, we're, we're not going to look at those verses. It's, it's a lot of kind of the same stuff, so I, I thought we could get by without it. What we've got in Hebrews 11 and 12, remember, is uh, talking about faith. And somebody uh, last week, remember, uh, preached about faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You may remember that from last week. And uh, now, as we go through 11 and get into 12, uh, we have examples given, example after example, as we march through the Old Testament, of people who operated with faith. And I always like to make sure that we emphasize we're not citing these people to give praise and glory to them. Okay? That's, that's somehow that's an easy thing to fall into. But through the God who was faithful to his promises to them and through them, okay? There's maybe a subtle distinction to be made there. Uh, you know, as Abraham, we're not praising Abraham because he's Abraham. We know he was an idolater before. But look at what God did through Abraham, right? God promises him these things, and then God delivers. And it's the faithfulness of God that is, is sort of running as an undercurrent through all of this. So let's just start, and we're going to have to go, I think, just verse by verse, and I'll read the whole thing first. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay? By the way, I don't know if I mentioned, for those at home, we're in Hebrews 11, okay, right now. So, great example of a faithful God is the God who says, and he said it actually in Genesis 21, verse 12, that Abraham's descendants are going to be named through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And remember that old story that, you know, Sarah uh, takes matters into her own hands, right? God made a promise. You're going to have a son. You're going to have an heir. Uh, your descendants are going to be more than the, the stars up in the sky and more than the grains of sand. And uh, things are going on. Well, no, there's no son. There's no heir. And uh, Sarah, you know, uh, takes uh, uh, her servant, uh, Hagar, and uh, comes up with a bright idea. And uh, the, uh, the result of that was Ishmael. God then comes through with his promise, just like he said he would. And, uh, and Isaac is born. And in, in, in Genesis 21, uh, 12, again, God says to Abraham, your descendants are going to be named through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And uh, by the way, uh, the Islamic world would say, you're all wrong. The sentence are going to be named through Ishmael, not through Isaac. That's another study for another time. Uh, and then, surprising, shockingly, God says to Abraham, I want you to take this guy, Isaac, and sacrifice him. Offer him as a sacrifice. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? It, it sounds illogical. 
Why would God do that? And so remember the story. Uh, Abraham takes him, does exactly as he was commanded. He's, he's, he's ready to strike him, and God says no. Okay? God had, in effect, tested him there. And notice uh, in the verses right after this, you pick up with some insight here that we didn't have back when we read Genesis. Um, verse 19, he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what was the reason? What was Abraham thinking here when he thought to himself, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. What was, he, what was he assured of in his mind? That God could what? Raise him back up from the dead. Boy, there's a little resurrection theology in the Old Testament, right? And in effect, it says here, in effect, he did. He got him back, you might say, uh, kind of almost figuratively, as it says here, pointing to the resurrection from the dead. He got him back from the dead. He, almost, he was that far from, from being amongst the dead, right? Okay, so... There's faith right there that God provides Abraham with, okay? And there's God being faithful, right? He said, your descendants are going to be named through Isaac, and sure enough, even when you were, you know, that close to killing them, they're still going to be named through Isaac. He's faithful. Always does what he says. All right, going on, verse 20. And I'm not going to, we just don't have time to go through all of these. I can tell you where a few of these are. By faith, Isaac, okay, the one who was almost killed now. See how we're going down the family line here. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He blessed near the end of his life Jacob and Esau, okay? Uh, that's uh, Genesis 27. You want to know where that's at? Next one, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So, uh, so Jacob, in faith, is blessing the sons of Joseph. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh would be those two sons. And that's in Genesis 48. And there's really two separate acts. He bowed over his staff. It sounds a little strange to us. He did that, we think, as an act of reverence when he was telling his descendants, don't leave my bones down here. Bring them back up. And I want to be buried with Abraham and Isaac. Okay? So that he kind of, it almost added emphasis there. I don't know if he, what we would compare that to today. Maybe a, somebody who's speaking at a podium and they look over, you know, they kind of lean over it for extra emphasis. And that's what he did back at that time. Why is it faith? Because there is going to be that future for God's people. They are going to be blessed with everything that these guys are blessing them with. Okay? So it's by faith that this happens. Um, okay, let's go on to verse 23. We get, uh, we get examples from Moses here. So we're done with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. we got Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Uh, I guess you could say this is more faith on the part not of Moses, obviously, because he was uh, still pretty young at this point, but on the part of his parents, right? And remember, what was the king's edict against, uh, at that time? Anybody recall? Any Hebrew son, any son of a Hebrew was to be what? Killed. It's sort of the precursor of uh, when Jesus is born, right? The killing of the innocents, okay? All right. Uh, so they hit him, and we know the end of that story. Uh, verse 24, now we get Moses. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So here, uh, in effect, Moses could have had a real cushy life in the court of Pharaoh, and instead he does away with all that, renounces all that, goes out and sees how his people are being mistreated, and actually uh, kills one of the Egyptians who was mistreating one of the Hebrews, okay? So by faith, he, he um, you might say, sides with God and God's plan rather than with the Pharaoh leader. Uh, verse 26, he, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the reward. Okay? So, again, he'd rather serve God than man, is, is the bottom line. Uh, verse 27. Uh, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Remember the story. God has the plagues, right? And the final, uh, final uh, plague is what? That, the straw that broke the camel's back. Killing of the firstborn, right? And remember the story of the Passover. They're to kill the Passover lamb, take the blood, sprinkle it on the doorpost and lentil and so on. That, that night, that blood would mark the houses of God's people. And that night, the angel of death, or, uh, death would come over and strike the firstborn dead, except those houses that had the blood, right? All right. So going on, um, uh, let's see, we're at 28. By faith... He, that would be Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Okay? So again, he, uh, just stop and think about this. Uh, God tells him to go ahead and do all this. Sprinkle blood, put it up here, and by faith, what? He does it. What does God ask us to believe today that we can't see the proof of or know is going to, is going to happen or is there? What are, what are some things? Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, yeah. That, that uh, you know, we have that, uh, not just bread and wine that we can see and taste and touch, but we have the actual body and blood of Christ, okay? All right. Uh, and, and baptism, simple water, but with that, again, that word and promise of God, okay? All right. Uh, going on, uh, verse 31 by faith, uh, oh, I'm sorry, let's skip. Uh, verse, I'm sorry, let's skip way ahead. Verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Famous party in the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down, right? And, and they had been encircled for seven days. Again, that marching around Jericho seven times. What's that going to do? Again, by faith, right? The conviction of things not seen. Uh, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so here we've got a, a uh, Gentile and a harlot at that who is, um, is lifted up as an example of faith because she hid the spies when the spies came. And what happens after they conquer uh, the promised land? She is, is brought among the faithful, right? And again, she operated with faith, okay? I'm just going to have a seat just to relax a little bit here as we go. All right, so verse uh, 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So the cloud of witnesses that we have around us would include everybody that was named in Hebrews chapter 11, and who else are a cloud of witnesses that we have around us? Yes, all the dead, the dead in Christ, it was, it was, and we can say all who have gone before us, right? And, I think you're overlooking something, one another, right? I, I once had a lady, um, uh, I want to make sure I don't get away. Yeah, I'll say it this way. A lady who was 91 years old. And a beautiful example of a faithful uh, witness to Christ. And um, in, she was, you know, every Sunday in Bible class, every Sunday in worship. And she, one time we were visiting, and she said to me, Pastor, I don't know why God keeps me around any longer. I'm ready to go to heaven. And, you know, I said to her in response, uh, well, I, can, I can't tell you exactly what God's plan is, but I can tell you that you are a wonderful example to all of us of a person living out their life in faith and trust in Jesus. 
And I said, uh, you, and I knew that she prayed a great deal as well. I said, you know, God, God will accomplish his will in his time with regard to you uh, being received in heaven, his near presence. But right now, you are an example for all of us, and in particular for young Christian women in our congregation. And so I think God surrounds us with a lot of witnesses, you might say. Uh, we think of those who have gone before us and are now in the Lord's nearer presence, and we think of those right around us as well in the body of Christ as we encourage one another. And notice there, a result of this, let us cast aside every weight or every sin. So you, you, the imagery is almost of a person running a race here, a race of endurance. And it doesn't really, uh, you know, it's not really talking about any particular sin, but just sin in general. Let's cast that aside and let's run with endurance the race that is before us, in the race actually being our life, right? Uh, that we run with endurance. We don't give up. Uh, we don't step aside. We stay in the race. And then finally, looking to whom? Looking to Jesus. And you might say he is the, uh, the old translation used to have the author and, protect, uh, and uh, perfecter of our faith. And uh, he's sort of the originator of our faith. He is the content of our faith. He is the sum and substance of our faith. And notice he is the perfecter or the finisher. It's the idea of coming across a finish line here with the faith. And he is that for us as well and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase there, I, I don't wanna, um, I skipped over that phrase. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And I mentioned before how crucifixion at that time was just terrible. It was, it was a public deterrent. Uh, that's why the charge was put above somebody's head when you were being crucified. The idea was uh, to the general public, if you do that, you might end up on a cross as well. In other words, if you do the same crime, that might be you in the future. And he endured all of that. The joy set before him was obviously not the suffering on the cross, but what would happen after that, his own exaltation and eventually our exaltation as well. That's what he did for the joy that would follow. He endured all that for us. Okay? All right. So that finishes. That's a much better one to preach on next, next week than either the Old Testament or the, the Gospel. It's all the Word of God, but in terms of being a little more uplifting, it certainly is. All right? All right. We are out of time. Let's uh, close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.